together. Father, we thank you uh, for the 4th of July, and we thank you for our country, Lord, and just uh, how you've blessed us. And we also acknowledge that we've largely turned away from you and don't desire you uh, in our lives and in our government and in our country. And God, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us of condoning things that you stand against, that, that you condemn? And Lord, we have great hope because, Lord, you're the God of the resurrection. You bring to life where there's death. And we pray for your covering of protection over Colorado Springs. Lord, your, your peace. Lord, those that would desire to do evil here, that you would stop them in the greatest way by saving them. Lord, by changing their hearts causing them to have a a conversion. We pray for the depressed in our city that feel like there's no way out, that are contemplating suicide. Lord, we pray for those that are, Lord, addicted, Lord, to drugs, to, to alcohol, to money, Lord, to sexual sin. Lord, would you set them free? We need you to, to work in our city. We pray, God, for our officials, Lord, for our governor. Lord, you know each and every one of them. Lord, would your hand be upon them? Lord, we pray for our new sheriff that will be coming in this fall in El Paso County. Would you work in his life and would you bless him? And Lord, you see our country, you see the state that it's in. Would you work in a, in a powerful way? I thank you for Rocky Mountain Calvary. I pray you a special blessing on those tonight that have come out in the midst of a, of a holiday, Lord, week, and that you would really minister to them in a special way through your word. So God, would you give me clarity and grace and strength in teaching your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Acts chapter 17. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, chapter by chapter and and verse by verse, and we're currently in Acts chapter 17. We're in verse 1. This is Paul's second missionary journey. We find it had an interesting beginning, didn't it? A surprise. Paul and Barnabas were headed out, but they have a disagreement. Two great godly men disagreeing over a young man named John Mark. Paul says, no, he can't go. He abandoned us on the first missionary journey. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, says, no, we need to bring him along. So they split up. And Paul, he takes Silas, and they begin this second missionary journey. And the scripture now tracks Paul's journey. Last week, Kent taught on one of the most fabulous sections of scripture. We see the birth of the church of Philippi. Paul wrote a letter to this church. The book of Philippians started with the Philippine jailer as he was there and Paul and Silas praising God in that difficult situation. This is a really important section of scripture because it ties into the rest of the New Testament. We're seeing the beginnings of the church of Philippi, the beginnings of the church of Thessalonica, and all of these wonderful things that that God is doing. So we'll pick up our journey in verse 1 of chapter 17. Now when they passed through Ampophilus and Alponia, they came to Thessalonica, where where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they left Philippi, and they come to Thessalonica, which is about a hundred-mile journey. If you've ever done backpacking or had to get somewhere through the transportation of your feet with no bike, no train, 
no plane, no automobile. You appreciate what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's huffing it. He's hiking to Thessalonica, and there's a synagogue of Jews in Thessalonica. This is modern-day Greece. If you're wondering, where is Thessalonica? It's Greece right below Italy. A map in the back of your Bible will really help you piece this together. In verse 2, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scripture. When Paul came to a city, the first question, the first place that he would look on his smartphone was, was there a synagogue? And he'd type that in on Google Maps and go right there, and this would be an open door to share Jesus Christ. Because in the synagogue, after the scripture reading, they would ask, does anyone have something to share? And Paul, of course, would be able to take that opportunity to declare Christ. Let's get a big picture for just a moment. Where did all of this begin? Where did God birth his church? Jerusalem. And now in a short period of time, it spread up the coast through Syria now rounded the corner of Turkey, coming into Greece, and God's on the move. And I hope as you study the book of Acts, that it's not just a history lesson. We're not just getting the academic information, but we understand God wants to touch people. He's got a heart for people. His spirit is moving. That's the key to this book, is it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's as the apostles listen to the Holy Spirit living our lives according to God's mission that he wants to touch and reach people. In Thessalonica, reasoning in the synagogues on the Sabbath for three Sabbaths, which would be three different Saturdays, three weeks. Verse three, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and to rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. This would be Jews Israelites, but also Gentiles that had a heart for the one true living God. So where does Paul start with them? He starts with the Christ. Now Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah, and the Jews longed for and looked for the coming of the Messiah. So the topic of the Christ would be something very familiar to them. So Paul comes in and he starts reasoning with them and demonstrating that the Messiah had to suffer. And that was something they didn't focus on very much, even though the Old Testament talked much about it. They focused more on the ruling and reigning of the Messiah, that the Christ is going to come and all the nations are going to come under Jesus Christ, be in submission to Jesus Christ. But they didn't focus on the suffering. So Paul would go through the Old Testament. He'd open up to Isaiah 53, Psalms 22, Genesis 22, and say, these are places where the Messiah was ordained to suffer. And then he would also go through the Old Testament, Psalm 16, and say, this is where the Messiah was to rise from the dead. So from their own scriptures, he's demonstrating and reasoning the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Then he drops the bomb and says, the Messiah is the Christ. It's Jesus. He's come. It's fulfilled. Now, what's the response to that in verse 4? And some of them were persuaded and had a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So some of them were persuaded. Some of the Jews came to faith in, in Jesus Christ. And then a great multitude of the devout Greeks. These are the Gentiles that were coming to the synagogue and searching for the Lord. And in this section of scripture, we find that the Gentiles had a much more readiness to receive Jesus Christ. So this is what I've been praying. 
Maybe you could consider praying it as well. It's who are the Gentiles in our community? Who are the Gentiles in my life? Who are those people that are ready to receive the gospel? Isn't that a great prayer? Who is it that the Lord's really working in their heart and priming the pump, if you would? Because there's many, there's a multitude of devout Greeks that, that respond. I think that they were pretty blessed to consider that God loved them. Like, wow, God, God would accept me. God would forgive me. Also, many of the prominent leading women respond as well. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul kind of is having a moment of memory. And he's saying, I remember when I came to you and how this church was started in Thessalonica. And he says, it was not only in word, in preaching, but also in power. They saw the demonstration of the reality of God. And then as we'll see in the next few verses... Paul says, you received God's word in much affliction with great joy of the Holy Spirit to the point where they were an example to the whole region. It wasn't easy for them to become a Christian. For them to accept that Christ was the Messiah, all of a sudden they would go through persecution, but they had the opposite response than what we think would be logical. They did it with great joy because of the Holy Spirit. And that's how the Holy Spirit can come and infuse something into our lives that wouldn't be there otherwise. Otherwise, it would be a cause for depression, a a cause to be distraught. But because of the Holy Spirit, they were able to receive God's word with joy, even though there was affliction. Those are special moments, isn't it? When you're under trial and you're under difficulty and you go, normally I know myself, I would respond this way but instead I have joy and I can't explain it. It's the Lord of my life. And I know some of you, you can, you can attest to that. You lost your job, but you have joy. You're like, I can't explain it. There's no reason for me to have peace. There's no reason for me to have joy. It's the Holy Spirit that's working in the midst of, of my life. So we see the opposition in verse five. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all of the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out, of, out to the people. Jason is the man who's housing Paul and Silas. It was out of envy that the Jews who didn't believe come out of Paul and Silas. We know we're not supposed to do it, but we kind of rate sin, don't we? We go, this is really a, a bad, bad sin. You know, don't do this and if you do it, don't ever tell anybody that you did do it. You know, these are the really, really bad ones. And then gossip and envy, well, those are kind of okay. It's really not that big of a deal if you gossip or, or if you have envy or you're jealous about someone else. But when you really look in detail of some of the great evil in Scripture, it's birthed out of envy. Why did Saul try to kill David? Because he was envious. Remember the song? Saul's killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. It's like nails on chalkboard to Saul. You know, he went postal every time he heard that song. You know, homicidal tendencies came out like crazy for Saul. Why? Because of envy. Why did the Pharisees kill Christ? It was out of envy. They had influence. They had power. Now all of the people were following Jesus. They would do anything in order to get it back. And we find that these men They come and attack Jason. They're looking for Paul and Silas out of envy. Be careful of envy in our lives. Notice how easy it is to get the city in an uproar. They know where the evil men are. You kind of wonder if they slipped these guys some money. 
saying, we need you to help out our cause. I'm certain sure that there's those types of people in Colorado Springs that are out there for hire to do evil things. And so they get these guys and the whole city's in an uproar and they have Jason in verse six. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out saying, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. What a great compliment. These guys have turned the world upside down. More accurately, they turned the world right side up. The world was upside down because of sin, because of idolatry. And Paul and Silas and the likes through the power of the gospel had influence and have impact. And never underestimate that with God we're a majority. You may be alone, but you're with the Lord. God's for us. He's with us. And God wants to do a work in and through the lives of people. He wants to turn cities upside down. He wants to turn them right side up for his glory. In verse 7, Jason has harbored them like they're terrorists, you know. He's harbored Paul and Silas. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. They like to throw this in against Christ and against Paul, that he's against Caesar. But that wasn't Paul at all. Jesus taught, give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and unto the Lord what belongs unto the Lord. This was an easy way to try to pigeonhole Paul and Silas. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they'd taken security from, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Some translations translate security as when they posted bond. They basically said, look, you're under arrest until you give us X amount of money, then we'll let you go. And they had to pay for their freedom and be able to be out of this arrest. Verse 10 Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. A couple of things here. Paul often relocated because of intense difficulty, actually death threats. Sometimes God will get us to a new location through difficulty because we wouldn't leave where we're at without him working in our lives. Ever been there? God, you're doing a work here. Things are going great. Thessalonica, things are happening. There's a, a receptiveness. And the Lord's like, okay, this is great, but I, I also want you to go to Berea. I, I, I want you to go to Texas. No, Lord, not Texas. Why? Can any good thing come out of Texas, right? The Lord's like, yeah, you're supposed to go. And so all of a sudden, things start changing in your circumstance. And things were pleasant with the boss, and now they're unpleasant. Things were great with the landlord, and now they're, they're terrible, and the Lord's working. Sometimes it's very clean and not messy, but many times God gets us to a new place through difficulty. So now Paul's in Berea, verse 11. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Sometimes God's word just says it straight, doesn't it? These guys thought things through to a greater degree. This is also translated, fair-minded is also translated noble in character. God saw something in the people of Berea that he liked. And he says, this is noble. You think that an act that's noble, what might that be? You know, Someone's on the railroad tracks and they're about ready to be run over by the train and they're caught and you risk your life to 
get them free. That would be noble. But God says what the Bereans did is noble. And that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scripture daily to find out whether these things were so. First, it was their approach towards the word. They received it with readiness. They, they were eager to hear and to study the word of God. There was a hunger for the word of God. I see that in our church. This is a wonderful church to pastor because there's an eagerness to study God's word. You have a hunger to come. You come with an anticipation for God to speak through his word. You've got your Bible. You've got a pen. You've got a piece of paper. Most importantly, you have a ready heart. And that's important to the Lord. I'm sure you've noticed in in your life, there's times where we approach God's word where we really don't have an eagerness. We're not really expecting God to speak. But then there's other times where we come with faith, we come with desperation, we come with readiness, and that's what we find the Bereans. But they also balance out their eagerness with testing the things that they were hearing, and God says this was a good quality. This is the Apostle Paul. It'd be very easy to go, this is Paul. We don't have to worry about whether he's trying to slip some false teaching, some heresy in there. We'll just take it. We'll just receive it as this is all from the Lord. But every day Paul would teach, then they would go back to the scripture, and they go, okay, the apostle Paul said this in the Old Testament, so I'm going to go read it for myself, and I'm going to see if he was right. So maybe you've heard this term, be a Berean, and you're like, huh, be a barista? I don't understand this. Sometimes people that have known the Lord for a while, they start using terms that make no sense to everybody else. And you're like, could you please explain that to me? What does it mean to be a Berean? It means that when you hear teaching, when someone's teaching the word of God, making claims about who God is, how we're to be saved, how we're to live our lives, that we go back to the word and we allow the word of God to be what teaches us, to instruct us. And church, we desperately need this. Think about this. We had a a men's wilderness trek trip that Pastor Dan led, and he was filling me in on how it went today. And they had way more snow up on the continental divide than they were anticipating, so they lost the trail. It makes sense, right? It's all covered in snow, so, so where's the trail? And thankfully, Dan spent a bunch of years in the army and was able to use his mountaineering skills to get them on the right track, and they made it through. And but there were times when they were walking through snow where they were dropping in these drifts to, to their waist, and some of them had 70-pound packs on their back. Now, I wonder if the, any of those guys at that point were going, is Dan a trusted guide? Does, <laughs> I hope he knows where he's going as now they're making their own trail through, through the Rocky Mountains. It's a an issue of life or death and survival in that illustration, but how much more so when it comes to the things of God? You're, you're trusting a whole lot in the person that's teaching you the scriptures, that Christian book that you read, that Christian radio that you read, and you want to have an openness. You don't want to lose the openness. You don't want to become skeptical. You want to have the readiness, but then you also just want to test it with the word of God, and you go back and you say, okay, They said this, but where is it in Scripture? So this means you've got to have a life in the Word. You've got to have a life in the Word. Genesis to Revelations. Read it. Know it. Look it up. If something doesn't seem right to you, don't settle for it. 
and look in and say, I got to find out what the scripture says. This is the amazing thing about scripture and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you is the scripture is understandable. And the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher. So you can read the Bible and you can understand what the Bible says. Now, if you open up your Bible and you read it and you go, this is clearly saying this, but yet then this teacher is saying this, and it's contradictory to Scripture, you take what the Scripture plainly and clearly says. I can't emphasize this enough. I can't emphasize it enough. One of the concerns that I have for us as the body of Christ as a whole is we're kind of becoming cultural Christians where we like to read the newest Christian book by the hottest, most popular author at the time. Not like hot and attractive, but hot in that it's a good book, right? So here's this new buzz book and that everybody's got to read and they're, and they're talking about it. And you go, hey, when was the last time you read your Bible? Oh, who needs to read their Bible? I mean, we've got this new great book that has just come out. I like to read and I like to read Christian books and I enjoy some of the books that, that come out, but it needs to be secondary to your life in the Word. Amen? Because what we're very slowly, subconsciously doing is we're allowing a human to take the place of God's word that's authored by the Lord. So have first and foremost the life in the word where you check it by the word of God. Be, be a Berean. We go on into verse 12. Therefore many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So many of them believed in Berean, the Jews, and also a lot of the Greeks. It says not a few of them, so there was a bunch of them, prominent women as well as men here in Berea. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Man, trouble just doesn't give up. These guys are like, I'm hearing what Paul and Silas are doing in Berea, what God's doing. Notice what they oppose. They learned that the word of God was preached by Paul in Berea. And you got to know there's going to be people that oppose the word of God. There's going to be people that attack the, the word of God. So they come with the same tactic to stir up the crowds. They're dogged on resisting the word of God. Verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea and both Silas and Timothy remained there. You gotta wonder if Paul's just like, oh no, here we go again. I just got unpacked. Now I gotta throw it all back in the suitcase and go on down, down the road. And he's headed now to Athens. And Silas and Timothy, they remain there. And we get the idea that this is rushed, that Paul's life's in danger. So they're like, you gotta go. You gotta go right now and, and get out of here. Verse 15. So those who conducted Paul, brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul's like, you better get Silas and Timothy as well. They need to come with me here to to Athens. Verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul's waiting without his travel companions, Timothy and Silas. What does he do with this time that he's alone? What does he do with this downtime, this this dead time? 
First, we don't find him sinning. We don't find him compromising. We'll find more about our character than we're alone than any other time. What do you go to when you're, you're alone? Do you go to prayer? Do you go to drawing near to the Lord? Or are those the times that you, you go to sin? So he's alone, but he's not sinning. He's not compromising. And he's praying. He's looking at this city. And I want you to focus in on this word saw. And in the Greek, it's the same that we get the word theater. So he's looking at the city and he's watching it closely to see what the spiritual climate is of the city. He's not just scouting out the best restaurants. He's not just looking at the property values. He's not just looking at the natural beauty that's there. And Athens is a a very beautiful city. I'm sure he's appreciating those things. But he's really wanting to know, what's God doing in this city? Are there people that know the Lord, that love the Lord, or following the Lord? Is there people that don't know the Lord, that are going to hell very quickly? They're racing towards hell. What do they believe? If they're into false gods, what exactly are those false gods? And sometimes we get so busy in our lives, we stop seeing the spiritual climate. Just try it for a half hour. Go into a busy King Supers just with the lens of, God, would you show me the spiritual condition of the hearts of the people here? Walk through your neighborhood. Walk slowly in prayer and say, God, would you just show me spiritually what's happening in this neighborhood? What's happening in this apartment complex? And as he takes it in, And as he sees the spiritual condition, his spirit gets provoked. And the word provoked, it means to stir, to make sharp, to irritate. He's irritated. He's mad. He's he's angry in, in a good way because he sees so many people that don't know the one true living God. Now, when you go through your neighborhood, what irritates you? Is it your neighbor's grass or your own grass, you know? If you've got a really nice lawn, then it's probably, you're probably irritated at your neighbor because they don't, aren't keeping up their yard like they should. Or, you know, if your lawn is suffering this year, like mine is, you look across the street green with envy, quite literally, and get a little irritated of, you know, what's wrong with, with my grass? What is it that irritates you when you go through, through your neighborhood? Do you have somebody that just loves to thump their music? And it's like 11 o'clock at night and you're like, man, I'm getting irritated. Ah, you know, I'm getting, or do you have one of those that just loves their Harley? Ah, and one in the morning. Boom. Yeah, I got a theory about people that do that one in the morning. Your parents didn't hold you enough when you were little. And you're just dying to get attention. You're like, please, someone, someone notice me at one in the morning ah, on my motorcycle. I'm a big man on my motorcycle. It's like, Do you have to do that at one in the morning? So you know what irritates me at one in the morning, right? (laughs) And all of a sudden we go, God, I'm so wrong. I'm so messed up. You know, my my priorities are are in the complete wrong place. The, The things that should irritate me aren't irritating me. And the things that I should be able to let go, I'm not letting go. And God, help me to be provoked about the spiritual condition of our city. It needs to happen. It needs to happen in a way like it did for for the Apostle Paul. What do you see that really gets to you? You know, do we stop and consider as a country how many babies that we abort and how many that we kill in in the womb? I know that's an uncomfortable topic and 
Some of you have gone through abortions and I want you to know that God forgives and he wants to heal your heart. And we'd be naive to think that that's not a reality. Some of you men have influenced a gal in your life to to go and get an abortion. But with that reality, it should also move us in going, God, how have we come to accept this as a culture? I'm amazed at how we have people that are in a biblical definition of marriage, a heterosexual marriage between a man and a woman, and they don't want to be married. They're like, no, I don't want it. I'm going I'm to get divorced. And then you've got an unbiblical definition of marriage, same-sex marriage, and they want marriage. That should do something inside of our hearts. Marriage is sacred. It's actually given to represent Christ in the church. It's not man's institution. It's not for me to define. God defined it. And he said it's between a man and a woman to represent Christ and the church. That's something that the church can't let go of. And it should stir something inside of us. By no means should it stir hate. By no means should it stir a heavy hand. It should stir a a heart of brokenness and move us to prayer and say, say, God, we want to see people reached. This just represents a whole bunch of, of empty hearts that need to know the true love of Jesus Christ. Whether it's heterosexual sexual sin or homosexual sexual sin, it's people that need to be touched with, with the love of God. We look at our, our city and you see all these green crosses everywhere, right? Because we've legalized pot. We can turn on our streetlights now. We're benefiting from the tax revenue that comes through smoking pot and I hear Frito-Lay's doing really well with Cheetos and you know (laughs) but then what is what does that spiritual condition say it says something there's a lot of empty hearts isn't there there's a lot of hearts that need to be touched with the love of of Jesus Christ and I'm the first one to say I get too busy with the wrong things to stop and consider the spiritual climate. But God wants to do a work in our city if we'll stop and look. We need our spirit provoked. So we look at verse 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So now we find a slightly different tactic of the Apostle Paul or approach of the Apostle Paul. He's going to the synagogue to talk with the Jews and the Gentiles that do believe in a Messiah. But he's also going to the marketplace. He's going to the place where they're doing business. He's going to the Starbucks. He's hanging out where there's commerce and and people are. And he's striking up conversations with whoever happened to be there. In verse 18, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? These are two philosophies that were prominent in the day. And the Epicurean philosophy was that pleasure is chief. The ultimate aim in life and goal in life was pleasure, but not to the point of excess. And was found through tranquility and through peace and loving mankind. And you'll find that this philosophy is still alive and well today. There's a really good food magazine called Epicurious that has great recipes inside of it. What are they saying? 
underneath all of that is a philosophy of saying the ultimate aim in life is to have pleasure, and we're going to find that through food. Now, we can enjoy food. You know me. I, I enjoy food. But it's not my God. Hopefully, as I'm eating food, I'm giving praise and thanks to the Lord, not thinking that the tranquility of food is somehow going to bring me into this right alignment. So Epicurean philosophy led to hedonism, and hedonism was that pleasure is all, even if it is to the point of extremes. Now, Stoics were the opposition to this. And they saw themselves as being pantheistic. They believed in a multitude of gods. They had a high moral standard. And their purpose was to direct history. So they thought by living very morally and having control of our negative emotions, that then we can direct history. And so you can see these people that are interested in pleasure. And then you can see these others that are in, they're interested in sacrifice in order to have the ultimate uh, Victory. I think probably the Epicurean following was a little bit more popular than the Stoic, but I'm just kind of guessing there. Verse 18 continues, Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he's preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So at first they're intrigued. They're like, oh, he's talking of another god. And Athens was filled with idols, and they always loved the thought of another god. So that they embraced a multitude of gods. In verse 19, And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak. Areopagus means hill of Aris. That's what it literally means. It's been come to known as Mars Hill. Because there's a marble hill where they would sit and they would talk about religion and also talk about philosophy. Also, it was the place of judgment. The judicial system would be there upon Mars Hill. At Paul's day, they lost power to where Mars Hill, this hill, was the place to discuss religion and to be able to discuss philosophy. Also, this is very close to the the Acropolis, if you've seen pictures of Athens, it's a famous architectural spot, one of the most famous of the world. So the Acropolis would be on the top, and then Mars Hill was just off the side, this marble hill. So if you have the opportunity to go to Athens, you can actually sit on Mars Hill today and be in this exact place where Paul had this conversation. And at the Acropolis is where history defines the beginning of democracy for Europe. They trace it back to the Acropolis. This is a highly intellectual place. This would be the most academic place of the world at the time, and Paul is being brought to this location. In verse 20, for you are bringing some strange news to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Hey, this, this is something new. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Isn't something new just kind of tickle your ears and perk your interest a little bit? You might as well just put Twitter and Facebook right in, in this with verse 21. You know? How many people are cruising Twitter and cruising Facebook just to find out something new? Hate to burst your bubble, but there's nothing new. 
There's absolutely nothing new. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. It's all been tried before. It's all been done before. It's going to be repeated. We should be not so concerned with what's new, but what's true. Amen? That should be our, because truth doesn't change. I'm not necessarily looking for the next new thing. I'm looking for what, what is true. Verse 22, then Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Paul's saying, I, I see that you have a desire to worship. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. They had so many false gods, they thought, well, what if there's some God out there that we just don't know about? We better create an altar and worship him too, so the altar of the unknown God. Paul sees this and he goes, this is the perfect opportunity to tell them about the one true God. I think that we can relate to what Paul's going through in Athens. Is there's a large community that doesn't know Jesus Christ, that has no idea who he is, and Christ needs to be in the marketplace. Satan wants to keep the discussion of the gospel and Christ in the walls of the church. But Christ needs to be talked about in the marketplace. He needs to be talked about in the coffee shops. He needs to be talked about in the neighborhoods. He needs, he needs to be talked about where people are at, at the parks, in a loving way, just as Paul is doing. What do you think about Christ? As we're talking to people about Christ, we want to look for an open door. And that's what Paul does on Mars Hill. Listen to what people are saying and a lot of times, out of their own mouth, there's going to be an opportunity to segue the conversation into Jesus Christ. People will start to say, man, I'm having a really bad day. I feel, I feel really depressed. I don't know how to handle what's going on with my teenager. I don't, I don't know how to handle what's happening at work. Well, you know what? This is what I've found in my life when, when I feel that way. This is what gets me through. And you start to begin to point them to Jesus Christ. Look for the open door. That's what the Apostle Paul does. In verse 24, God who made the whole world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not well dwell in the temples made with hands. This is a colossal statement. Notice it. Look at it closely. God singular, one God. There's one true living God, not this multitude of gods who made the world and everything in it. Since he's Lord of everything, he's the, he's the master of heaven and earth, the creator cannot even be limited by his own creation. We look at the majesty of the mountains, the majesty of the ocean, and it can't limit God. It can't contain God. Even his creation can't contain him let alone some building that we build, some temple that, that we build. And this would go right into the face of idolatry. Verse 25, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath, and all things. This is the self-sufficiency of God. God's not there in heaven saying, oh, I need you to, to worship me. I'm having an identity crisis, and if you don't worship me, I'm not gonna be okay. I need you to validate my existence. No, he's the creator. He gave life and breath into everything. And I'm sure comforted that God doesn't need me. Aren't you comforted as well? He's sufficient in and of himself. 
verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all of the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundary of their dwellings. Fascinating verse. A multitude of nations. Think of all the different ethnic groups. But we're of one blood. God created us with the same blood. And he created us with different nations that he predetermined, that he knew their appointed times and where they would dwell. As you've meditated on a global map, how did this country end up with this space? How did that happen? And we get into history and we start learning the events that that took place. Ultimately, it was God's sovereign hand. God said, okay, I'm going to allow for this country to have this much space. God drew the boundaries, and he also predetermined the time that that country would be into existence. History is really his story, H-I-S. It's it's God's story and how he worked. And it's fascinating to look at a country, a nation, and go, okay, here it is, and this is how powerful they were, and then all of a sudden, they start to diminish, and then they're off the pages of history. Right now, Greece is under the occupation of Rome as Paul is in Mars Hill, but eventually they lose their power and they lose their influence, don't they? That's all predetermined by the hand of God. Verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord. So why did God create all these nations? Why did he create these people groups? That they would seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, that they might reach out for him though he's not far from each one of us. God loves the nations of the world, and I hope you know that. He loves the nations of the world. He's created us all, and he longs for every people group to seek the Lord, every people group to reach out to the Lord. It's gonna be awesome to be in heaven and to see all the people groups represented. God bringing them all together around the throne room of God. All dialects, all ethnicities worshiping and praising the Lord. He created us to seek him and to reach out to him. I like the end of verse 27, though he's not far from each one of us. God says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. A simple step of faith to reach out to him, to draw near to us, and he rushes towards us. We take one step towards God and he rushes into our lives. Verse 28, for in him we live and move, we have our being, and also some of your own poets have said, for we, for we are also his offspring. So now Paul quotes their poets. He's finding something that's relatable to them. He's finding points that they have in common, and he's pointing it to God. He's saying, in Christ we live, in Christ we move, in Christ we have our being. As some of your own poets are, have said, we are his offspring. Verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. We're made in God's image. God's not made in our image. Idolatry always wants to make God in our own image. This is the most intellectual place on the planet at the time A lot of their philosophies continue to affect the world today. And do you know where it led them? To idolatry. You know what they did with their idols? They made idols in their own image. We're always going to make an idol in our own image. It's a worship of ourselves. It's an expression of ourselves. 
But that's not the gospel. The gospel is God made us in his image and we, we worship him. So God's divine. He's not like an idol that's made out of men's hands. In verse 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. The, the need to recognize sin, to turn away from sin, to turn to God. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Christ has risen and there will come the point where he returns to judge the earth. To look and see those who believe in Christ and those who don't. Verse 32 And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. This is like going to Harvard, to Princeton, to Stanford, the most intellectual places, and say, you know what? I've got a message for you. Jesus Christ died for you. He he rose again. It's only through Christ that you're going to be saved. There's something about us where we hesitate to bring up the name of Christ with those that are highly intellectual that mock the things of Christ. But yet with with someone who's not as intellectual, we may feel more bold to bring up the things of Christ. And as you go into chapter 18, you see that Paul goes on to Corinth. And if you have the time this week, do some homework and read the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the first two chapters. And Paul says, I was determined to come to this intellectual place of Corinth, not with man's wisdom, but with God's wisdom. Because God's wisdom is more powerful than the foolishness of men. He says, I was determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. They can laugh, they can mock, they can call you a babbler, but there is power in the testimony of God. That's why he gets a response. When you tell people, God loves you, he died for you, he has a plan for your life. So even though Paul's mocked in Athens, he doesn't back down when he goes to Corinth. He continues to preach Christ. Verse 33, so Paul departed from them there. Interesting, he he says, okay, I'm done. You guys are mocking. You're, You're saying that you want me to come back and hear me again, but he can discern that it's not true spiritual hunger. So he moves on. In verse 34, however, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dysonus, the Aeropagite, so Dysonus was someone who was part of Mars Hill, that was part of this this council, this discussion of religion and and philosophy and judicial matters. A woman named Darmus and others with him. So God uses Paul in Athens, this intellectual place, to bring some to Christ, even one that is in the midst of this philosophy. And then quickly, the page turns, and chapter 18 records how God births a church in Corinth. So here's a quick conclusion for us tonight. And the first is, receive the word in affliction like the church of Thessalonica. It may cost you something, but allow the Holy Spirit to infuse in your life. It's worth it. It's worth it. That's the lesson that we get from Thessalonica. Then there's an application with the Bereans as test it to make sure it's true. Man, read. Read as many Christian books as you can get your hands on, secondary to the Word of God, but always take it back to the Word of God. Go, I've got to find it in Scripture. And if it's not in Scripture, then I'm going to dismiss it. So very important. Don't take my word for it. 
Pastor Kent's word for it, Pastor Robert's word for it. You go to the word of God because you're going to have to give an account to the Lord. I'm going to have to give an account to the Lord. And at the end of the day, every man is still man. Every woman is still woman and there's only one God and it's his word and we trust his word. Amen? So we need to test the teaching that we're receiving to make sure it's biblical and then allow God to stir your spirit. Allow God to provoke your spirit. Paul could have been in a place of complacency, indifference, where he came into Athens and he could have just been completely comfortable. I'm sure the Epicureans had great food. It's right on the Mediterranean. It was close to some nice beaches. Could have put his feet up and just said, ah, this is such a comfortable place to be. There's no doubt that Athens wasn't comfortable. But he looked around and he goes, oh, there's people going to hell. These Epicureans, they have no idea who Jesus is. They don't know God. They're going through their life without knowing God. These Stoics are trying to be so, so moral, but they don't know the grace of God. And all of a sudden, we go home to our neighborhoods. We go home to our apartments. We go to our workplace. We go, you know what? I want to be irritated by the right things. I want to be provoked by the right things that people don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then start looking for that open door. Start talking with that neighbor. Start talking with that coworker. Talk with people at the grocery store. I need to be reminded of this. You know how a lot of people are reached with the love of Jesus Christ? Be friendly and talk to them. Paul's out there talking to him. He's in the marketplace talking to him. If we don't ever talk to people and build relationships, we're never going to be able to share the love of Jesus Christ. Genuinely ask and care, how are you doing? How are things going in your life? Is there anything that I can, can pray for, for you about and watch the Lord do a great work? But his desire and power to save hasn't changed. He wants to save just as much as he did in Acts chapter 17. So would you stand with me and let's 